The book of Judges is a very interesting book. It's filled with some very crazy stories. It's filled with quite a bit of violence and mayhem. There's a lot of chaos involved in the book itself. And really, the book is about God's deliverers. God's deliverers are these people who we know them as judges, but when we think of the word judge, we, in our American culture, we normally think of people in a courtroom. And that's not exactly at all what we're talking about here. Although the judges did have some role in um, ruling and making decisions between uh, disgruntled parties and people, their primary role that we see in the scripture is them uh, relieving the oppression that God had sent on them out of judgment. So we'll unpack that a little bit today. But as we review our storyline, you can see the map that we've used since the time of Moses up on the screen again. And remember that Moses brought the people out of Egypt and then they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then, as we learned last week, Joshua led the people into uh, Jericho. Now, Jericho is, well, it's about where the triangle is that stood for Joseph uh, when we did the Joseph unit. This particular map does not have uh, the Dead Sea, etc., on it. But it's just uh, northwest, kind of, of, of the Dead Sea. So when Joshua led them in there and Last week we looked at the uh, battle of Jericho and how they begin to take the land. And the rest of the book of Joshua unpacks how they come in and they have a central campaign and then they have a south and a north campaign that they get into the land and begin taking the land and dividing up the inheritance that God has given them. And so that story continues. Even though Joshua dies, the story continues. Because the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. All of these books continue the storyline of what God is doing with the upper story and the lower story combining. Us being involved in the lower story and God's plan on the upper story. In the book of Joshua, for instance, these are some of the events that take place. Now, um, unfortunately, this book that I copied this from has a slight error. At the bottom, the big 100, Joshua actually died at 110. So I'm going to have to write Zondervan and tell them that their book has a 10-year problem. So anyways, taking the promised land in Joshua... And Joshua has lots of victories. The three major campaigns, as I mentioned, uh, with the big three in the middle. He defeats 31 different kings. He has several different miraculous events that happen, including the, the sun standing still for a day as God fights for his people. And that's what I want you to remember, that God fights for his people. It wasn't Joshua and how cool Joshua was. It was God fighting for his people. And it's the same thing you have to theme that you need to understand happens in the book of Judges. It's not new. Because who fought for his people in Exodus? It was God. God fought for his people. He fought through the ten plagues. He fought through the parting of the, um, the sea. He fought all through their time together. And he continues that in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, we read that the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I brought you out of Egypt, and I led you into the land I had promised to your fathers. I also said... I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the people who are living in the land, and you are to tear down their altars. Now notice that God said he will never break his covenant. But as you already know probably, the people repeatedly break their covenant with God. But he says that even if you are unfaithful, he will be faithful. That's repeated in the New Testament for us, actually. He also says, do not make a covenant with the people. Why? Because they already have a covenant with God. So they're not to have this other covenant. And you should tear down their altars. 
How it's going to come into the story today. Gideon tears down an altar, a pagan altar, in contrast to building them. We continue on. It says, you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly, and they named the place Bachim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. So God has said, because you refuse to follow me, because you refuse to be faithful, because you are covenant breakers, that I will not drive these people out for you. I was fighting for you. So instead of driving them out, I'm going to let them be a thorn to you. In fact, they're going to become oppressors. In Judges chapter 3, it says, These are the nations the Lord left in Israel to test. There's our word, test. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the wilderness episodes. To test Israel, since the Israelites had fought none of these in any of the wars of Canaan. The Lord left them, in verse 4, to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands he had given their fathers through Moses. Testing in your life, as we talked about, is part of God's educational process. And it's a matter of, are you going to choose him or are you going to choose something else? It's the tree in the garden. Are you going to trust God and what he determines is good or are you going to try to figure out on your own what is good? And remember, unless you know everything about everything, you don't have the smarts to figure out what is actually best for you. And so that's why we need to trust God, because he knows everything about everything. In Joshua, or I mean Judges chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Joshua sent the people away, and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Now obviously they're, they're reviewing a little bit of what took place. As, as Joshua moves off the scene, okay, and as the people had taken their inheritance, okay, this picture shows you the size of the tribes and the size of the land that was allotted to them. So the bigger the box, the larger the tribe. And the larger the tribe, the more land that they need. And so you can see up here who the biggest tribes are. Okay. Now, in today's story, we're going to be talking about some small tribes. Okay, Gideon. All right. You can look on our, our screen up here and you can see that um, Levi down in the bottom right is a very small tribe. Okay, Asher is a very small tribe. Zebulun, small tribe. Benjamin, small tribe. All right, the whole bottom row. And so these are the, the tribes, and these are the land allotments that they have had. We continue in Judges, in chapter 2, verse 11, through following. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals. So Joshua's off the scene. We're in chapter 2 of Judges, and the people are worshipping false god. They're worshipping the Baals. Now this is a fairly long passage. It says, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from the surrounding peoples, and they bowed down to them. They infuriated, that means angry, that means ticked off, the Lord. For they abandoned him and worshipped Baal and the Ashtaroths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. The Lord then raised up judges who would save them from the power of the marauders. But they didn't listen to the judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. They 
they did not do as their fathers did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while the judge was still alive. And the Lord was moved to pity, that's compassion and mercy, whenever they groaned, called out to him, cried out to him, because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act, now note this, even more corruptly, even more corruptly than their fathers, going after other gods to worship and bow down to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate, that means stubborn and proud ways. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he declared, Because this nation has violated my covenant that I made with their fathers and disobeyed me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I did this to test Israel and to see whether they would keep the Lord's ways by walking in it as their fathers had. And the Lord left these nations and did not drive them out immediately. He did not hand them over to Joshua. Now, the book of Judges covers a lot of judges. You can see them up on the screen. We are not going to cover them all this morning. We're going to look primarily at Gideon. But what you need to understand, and I tried to highlight it in the verses in that chapter, chapter 2 of Judges, is that there is a, a progression or, or a, uh, a degression, because it's a negative, there is this uh, cycle in the book of Judges, both for the whole book and also for each of the judges. Okay, Now, you can see on, on the screen these judges here. The first one on the top right is Othniel. Okay? That's in chapter 3. Okay, we're not even going to hardly cover him. Okay, Gideon is the next one where it says 71. He's got 71 sons. Okay, We'll talk about him in a little bit. Jephthah, Tola, Ehud, Egon, Ibsen. There's another typo. It's not Elon. Eglon. This book from Zondervan, I tell you. Samson, um, Jer, Shamgar over here killed 600 with the sharp stick. If you saw in the video we were just watching a minute ago, they had a sharp stick and they turned it into spears and stuff. But that's an ox goad, okay? He killed 600 guys with that thing. Now, Deborah, she's the woman, okay? So if you're reading the story uh, curriculum, the title is A Few Good Men and a Woman. Because Deborah was one of these judges. That's a pretty awesome story as well. But we're looking at Gideon today because Gideon is actually the turning point for the whole book of Judges. The book of Judges, the map on the left lists kind of where the judges were from, but it's probably too far away for you to see. But there is this cycle that takes place. The first thing is that the people sin. That's the number one there. The second is God judges... The enemies come and conquer them. The third is the people repent. The fourth is God raises up a judge. The fifth is the people are liberated. And sixth is the judge dies. Now, because I want you to remember this, and I don't think you'll remember all six, okay, there's a simplified way to remember that, and it's even alliterated for you. And so it's very simple. Sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation. All right? Supplication means they call out to God. So what you're going to see happen in the book of Judges is the people sin. Okay, they worship the Baals instead of God. Then they go into servitude. They're slaves. You can put slaves instead of servitude if you prefer. To foreign oppressors or aggressors. And then the supplication is they cry out to God. And when God hears them crying out, what does he do? He responds. And he sends salvation or deliverance, the same thing, through the judges. And then on that last arrow before the sin part again, I have the word silence in there. And it's kind of a parenthesis thing, but it's also an important thing because there's this time period where they have peace.
So th- there's, no, there's no warring. There's a time of peace. Now, I need you to understand something else from the book of Judges as well. On, on this map here that I mentioned, sorry, wrong way. On the map over here on the left side, you can't quite see them all, but the judges are scattered all over. In fact, of the 12 tribes, there's only one tribe, Asher, who doesn't have a judge. Now, the reason you need to know this is because if you read through the book of Judges or you read commentaries or or handbooks about it or in your study Bible, it may give a a time frame for the book of Judges. It's somewhere around 300 to 400 years. But it's hard to tell because these judges are from all over the area. So they they have all the way up in the north and all the way down to the south. So there's judges all over here, okay? Now, their their reigns or the times that they were judges overlap. So you can have a judge that's judging here and another judge that's judging up here because the people attack and they're coming in from the sides. So the enemies are all outside here. Alright, does that make sense? Alright, so you could have two judges at the same time. Now, with that being said, all right, we want to understand that this cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, and salvation continues with each one of the judges and through the whole book. But it gets worse each time. All right, that's what you might not have caught previously. This is the downward spiral of Israel. This is from Dr. Dr. Block's uh, commentary on Judges. We start with Othniel, the first judge, and we end with Samson, the last judge. The bigger the circle is and the darker the circle is, the badder they are. And I don't mean bad in a good sense. I mean bad in a bad sense. And so we begin with Othniel, and Othniel is actually a pretty good judge. All right? Othniel is from the family of Caleb. Caleb, if you remember, is one of the two spies that said, yes, we can conquer this land. And so he's from that family. Maybe that has something to do with it. By the time we get down to Samson, you can see that the circle is much larger and it's completely black. Samson was a mess. And Samson represents the mess that the Israelites were in. We're going to focus on Gideon. You can see that Gideon's circle is about the same size as Samson's. And it's not quite as dark. Okay? You can see at the bottom... The amount of space it takes up in the book, all right? The size of the circles, I think, is is partially related to the the space in the book of Judges, okay? Gideon is right in the middle, and he takes up a lot of the space. Gideon is the turning point for the book of Judges. So let's look at chapter 6 of Judges and see what we find. It says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, this is again. All right, we're in chapter 6, so they've already gone through several Judges here. They didn't learn. So the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years. And so the Midianites began to rule over them, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the Kittimites, they came and attacked them. They camped against them, and they destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. The Midianites came with their cattle, their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to waste it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, 
and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And you know, when you cry out to the Lord, what does God do? He listens and he answers. And so as, as Gideon is in this situation, the Midianites have oppressed them, okay? The Midianites, you've got to understand who they are. They, they come in, they come with camels. Now, now, the Israelites, they don't have these. That's the Calvary, okay? There's archaeological evidence that we know that the, the camels were used by, by these people. That was basically their Calvary. Uh, the camel can go 100, 150 miles in a day, okay? They can carry hundreds of pounds on them. They are a beast. Um, and so they were a beast of war for these people. They would come in. There was as many as the stars in the sky or the grains of, of sand on the seashore, which should remind us of what God promised uh, Abraham. The Israelites are not that many, which means the promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. But the Midianites are like that, and they're coming in, and they're taking all their crops. And so the Israelites have gone into hiding. Okay, They're in caves. They're hiding from the Midianites as they come in. And they're basically saying, come get us, God. And I'm wondering, as you and I read this story and I think through, what does this have to do for you and I today? How long do we wait before we call on God? Think about it. They go through this cycle nonstop. Okay? They, they sin, and they go against God, and then God sends in some enemies to teach them, right? And to try to educate them. And they go through the same process, and they wait years and years and years. The Midianites have been there how many years? Seven. How long do you wait before you call on God? How long do you wait before you decide that you want to change in your life, before you call out for God to help you? Like, how long does it take for you to realize that you need help from God? I think sometimes it takes us a lot longer than it should. In Judges 6, 7 to 10, he continues. He says, when the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. And he says to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am Yahweh your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. The Israelites did not obey me. And this is why Gideon becomes the turning point in the book of Judges. As the Israelites continue to turn their backs on God and to worship other gods, God sends in these oppressors. The same thing happens in your life and in my life. When we're unfaithful to God, we, we move kind of, if you will, outside the umbrella of God's protection, okay? And I don't like using this illustration because rain is good in the Bible, but and then the rain pours down on you. Because you're not under the protection of, of God's umbrella. God fought for his people constantly from the time that he freed them from Exodus until all through this time period. But the people were unfaithful. They, they, they could not grasp the idea of completely trusting God. They're completely fickle. And you see it even in the judges themselves. We get to uh, Gideon, the turning point here. And with Gideon, where, where do we find Gideon as... God comes to him. If you look in your Bibles, this is not going to be up on the, on the screen, but if you look in your Bibles in uh, chapter 6, okay, verse number 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak tree that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the um, Abizarite. 
And his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine vat in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now there's a few things you need to know. Okay, first off, where does he find him? He finds him in a wine press. Now you need to know a little bit about Old Testament stuff to understand why this is funny. Okay? It's actually a joke. Oh, you mighty man? Mighty man, the guy's hiding. What is he doing? Gideon is in a wine press, okay? Now, if you look at these pictures, all right, they are sunken down, okay? The, the place that you trample out grapes, that you make wine, is in a hole in the ground. He's in a hole in the ground, all right? You're like, okay, big deal. Okay, but he's not getting grape juice. He's working with grains, wheat, barley, etc. okay? Two different things. So you, you stomp on these, and you make the grapes into grape juice. But what do you do with wheat or barley? You use a threshing floor. The picture on the left is a threshing floor. A threshing floor is up on a higher elevation because you throw it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff, the light stuff, the junk away, and you're left with the good stuff. So why is he not up on a higher elevation? Because the Midianites, everybody's afraid of the Midianites. If he was on a higher elevation, the Midianites would be able to spot him and see that he's got some grain, and they would come and they would steal it from him. So he's hiding down in a hole, which makes it difficult to thresh the wheat, but he's hiding down in a hole, and so the angel of the Lord shows up and says, oh, you strong, mighty man. It's a joke. He's not. He's in hiding. Now, his father's name, Joash, means Yahweh is strong. His name means hacker. Yes, you're thinking computers. Not really, okay? Think more of breaking stuff, all right? He's a hacker because he's going to hack something in a little bit. He's from the weakest family. He responds to God, and he sounds almost like Moses. He says, please, sir, in verse 13, why has all this happened? And where are his wonders that our fathers told us about? Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But I will be with you, the Lord said, and you will strike down Midian as it were one man. It's like, it doesn't matter how many of them there are. It'll be like there's just one man. You will knock them out because I am with you. What did God tell Joshua repeatedly? Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. See, this is why if God is, is with you, and it doesn't matter who's against you, you can't lose. Because God doesn't ever lose. So he chooses a man, Gideon, who is from a small family and who is the youngest or weakest in his father's house. Okay? Now, we have other examples of the youngest being victorious. David was the youngest in his father's house, and he slew Goliath. Okay? What picture do we have in the Scripture? We have this picture in Scripture of God taking people who are weak. The Apostle Paul talks about this. And in their weakness, God shows himself strong. You see, Gideon isn't going to be the one that wins the victory. God's going to win the victory through Gideon. And that's what God is all about. It doesn't matter that he's the smallest or youngest or weakest family. God picked him on purpose. He didn't pick the big, strong guy. He wants to show what he's able to do. 
even with Samson. He was a big, strong guy, but his strength comes from God. And so here you see that in the background of, of Gideon, what this has to do with. You also see that Gideon in verse 25 to 27 is going to hack down this altar. So look what he says. He says in verse 25, On that very night the Lord said, Take your father's young bull and a second bull seven years old. Tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Now notice first off, the altar belongs to who? His daddy, whose name means Yahweh is strong. But is he trusting Yahweh? No, he's not. So he is in a family whose father is leading them after pagan gods. So God shows up in the midst of this situation, just like Rahab from last week. She's in a pagan family. She's an outsider that God turns into an insider. God is bringing revelation and his word to everybody, and the opportunity is for anybody who wishes, who desires, to enter into his kingdom. It's an open invitation to everybody. Tear down the altar, he says. He says, build, verse 26, a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's household, okay, his own father's household, and the men of the city, he did it when? He did it at nighttime. He said, I'm going to wait till nighttime to do this when everybody else is asleep. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar tore down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to each other, who did this? And they made a thorough investigation. They said, Gideon. It was Gideon, son of Joash. And the men said to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead his own case, because someone tore down his altar. And that day Gideon's father called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead his case with him, because he tore down the altar. Now, now Gideon, we already know, is, is a man that has some uh, weaknesses, and he's a little bit afraid. So he wants some more signs from God. And the next portion of the scripture lines out how he tests God with the fleecing. He's like, God, listen, th this seems a little bit strange to me. I really need you to strengthen me up here. So show me something. Okay, I'm, I'm going to put a fleece. I'm going to put this, this piece of carpet, if you will, sheepskin out in the, on the, uh, the grass. And the grass that we all do in the morning, it'll be wet, but make the fleece dry. And do the reverse. One day he does the one day. Does one day one way, the other day he does the other way. He says, make it dry, but the grass wet, make it wet, and the grass dry. Show me both ways. So I need to really know, God, that you're behind this, he says. I don't know that that's really the best way of going about testing God. Uh, I don't really think it is. But God does it for him, and God strengthens him so we can understand that God is there for him and with him, and God is uh, fighting for him. And so Gideon tests God in that sense. And that's the end of the chapter 6. But God continues on. And in chapter 7, God is going to show Gideon how he is going to win this battle against the Midianites. And so he says in chapter 7, as Gideon is going to triumph over the Midianites, he says, um, Jerubbabel, Gideon, and everyone who was with him got up early and they camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them. Okay, so north of them, okay, below the hill in the valley is the Midianites. And the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many people for me to hand the Midianites over to you, or else Israel might brag. So 
God wants them to know that they did not do this, but he did it. So he wants to whittle them down. He said, now announce verse 3 in the presence of the people. Whoever is fearful and trembling can turn back and leave. 22,000 go home. 22,000 were afraid. They went home. 10,000 remained. So we're down to 10,000 against an army that is so numerous you can't count them. And then the Lord said to Gideon in verse 4, There's still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. So now God's going to test them. If I say this one go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go, he cannot go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300, and all the rest of the people knelt to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. So we go from 10,000 to 300. 300 people to take on an entire army. So Gideon sent the Israelites to their tents, but he kept the 300 who took the people's provisions and the trumpets, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That night the Lord said, Get up and go into the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, go with Purah, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be strengthened to go to the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites were all down there, and, and they were all starting to get afraid, actually, of the Israelites. And Gideon didn't realize that, but he hears about it. Down in verse 15. Gideon heard, heard the account of a dream and its interpretation. He bowed in worship because he realized God was doing something. And he returned to the camp and he said, Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp to you. He divided the 300 men into three groups. So you got how many? You got 100 in each of these groups, okay? And he gave each man a trumpet in one hand. So what's in one hand? A trumpet. And an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. So in one hand you got a trumpet, and in the other hand you got a torch that's got like a clay jar over the top of it. Where's the swords? Where's the knives? That's not what we're going to war with. We're going with trumpets and torches. Watch me, he said, and do the same. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are to blow your trumpets all around the camp. And then you'll say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, and then there's two other camps of 100 each, right? They went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. The middle watch is like 10 p.m., okay? So it's 10 p.m. a little bit after. They blow their trumpets. They broke their pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and shattered their pitchers. So once they shattered the pitcher, what do they got? A big torch, right? So you got trumpets blowing, and you got torches all lit up. So this noise from the breaking of the jars, the noise from the trumpets, and all these lights. So you got all these flash bangs going on, right? They held their torches in the left hand, the trumpets in the right, and they shouted, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And each Israelite took his position around the camp. And the entire Midianite army fled and cried out as they ran. And when Gideon's men blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the swords of each man and the army against each other. So whose swords? The Midianites. So the Midianites start to attack each other. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They're being attacked. But they can't tell. All the lights, the flashbangs, and all of a sudden they're killing each other. Gideon's men don't even have to do much. They fled. 
in the direction of Zerorah, as far as the border of Ewa near Tebah. Gideon chases them down. They capture some. They ask some of the other tribes to help to turn over some of the kings that had escaped, and they wouldn't. And this is where there's a turning point in Gideon's life. Gideon triumphed over the Midianites as God gave him that victory, as God gave him the manner in which to go do that, as God showed himself strong, that with 300 men, Gideon, I am going to have you conquer thousands upon thousands of Midianite soldiers, and you're not even going to really fight them with your swords. I'm going to do something you've never seen before. And God wins the victory there. The rest of chapter 8, down through verse uh, 20 or so, is about Gideon chasing these men down and finishing them off. And then he turns against some of the other people who refuse. But if you look in verse 22, we're going to see the effects of how Gideon turns from God. And this is how the Gideon story ends. The Gideonites, or Gideon himself, was asked by the Israelites to rule, to be their king in verse 22. He says, rule over us as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. So all the stuff that you took, give me some of that. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And he said, we agree to give them. So they spread out a mantle and everyone threw an earring from his plunderment. So they take all this stuff, okay? They get 43 pounds of gold. And then what does he do? He makes an ephod from all this and he puts it in Ophrah, his hometown. And all the Israelites catch this verse, circle it, star it, highlight it. This is bad. Verse 27, the second half, all Israelite prostituted themselves there and it became a snare to Gideon. Yeah, Gideon was used by God. Gideon's household, his daddy, had already had false gods. He was in a family that was worshiping false gods. God used him to get rid of the Midianites because the people cried out to God after seven years of oppression. But then how does Gideon's story end? Turning away from God again. And the people again go to this cycle of rejecting God, of falling into sin. So you don't even have to read the rest of the book to know what's going to happen, because I've already told you the cycle. They sin, they go into servitude or become slaves, they cry out to God, and then he sends them another deliverer to save them. And that continues through the rest of the book of Judges, through chapter 21 or so. Kevin? Yeah. What is the, exactly the wrong thing? Well, he says he doesn't want to be their king, but then he begins to act like a king. And then he sets this, this ephod thing up. The, the, the priests and whatnot have these. The priests, the kings. Something so, they wear, right? Yeah. It's a garment, okay? And so, um, and then he sets this up in, uh, in his hometown, and it becomes a snare to them in his household, and they begin to turn away from God again, just like his father had his own bales prior to this. And... Um, and then also he's, he's got uh, these 70 sons, which are from his many different wives. 
And so that plays into the whole idea as well. And then um, there's just a lot of parallels between this. As you look at the whole book as a, as a whole, it's just all these little pieces here and there that um, if you just read them on their own, uh, you kind of breeze over them. But then if you connect them with the other aspects to the rest of the book of Judges, you see how um, the picture I showed you before of the, the downward spiral that's going on. And that's really what's going on here. Um, all the judge, you can actually compare the first and last judge and the, and the second judge and the second to last judge. And like the same Hebrew terminology used in all of those stories all the way through um, relating what goes on. And his, in his case, he led them astray from trusting in God again. And I mean, that's, that's just the bottom line of what he ended up doing. Which, um, I mean, that's what his family did. And so that's, he probably just had a hard time getting away from his family's religion and then the people's clamoring for things. And he didn't stand boldly um, and trust God in the situation. So, so when, when he died, the Israelites turned and again prostituted themselves with the Baals, and they made Baal Barith their god. So even though he had gotten rid of the Baal, all right, and that's not what they were worshiping with him, as soon as he's dead, what happens? They're right back to worshiping the Baal again. Okay, Baal is just these pagan deities of the, of the Canaanites instead of God, instead of Yahweh. And the Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them. And they did not show kindness to the house of Gideon uh, for all the good that he had done for Israel. So Gideon is like this middle judge, okay? He's, he's not as bad as Samson is. Uh, he's not as good as Othniel was, all right? So you have this whole sliding scale. By the time you get to Samson, okay, Samson is just a complete mess. He violates all aspects of the Nazarite vow that he was born under. He violates the aspects of what it means to trust in God. Um, he is he's with women of another faith. He is violating all the things that God told him. And God removes himself from him. At the end of the Samson story, it says that he goes out as before, but he didn't know that God had left him. He didn't even realize that the power of God had left him. And so, in the book of Judges, you read all of these stories. And, and what is it that, that we're supposed to learn from the book of Judges? The, the same thing we learn from the rest of Scripture. The same thing that God was teaching the, the people in the wilderness. That they have to trust Him. They have to 100% trust Him. I mean, the Bible is actually extremely repetitive. The stories are about the same thing all the time. About the people's sin and how the people are unfaithful and God is faithful. I mean, that's the bottom line. You're unfaithful, God's faithful. People are unfaithful, God's faithful. And that's why the stories and the Bible still has relevance in every culture and in every age. Because people are the same. They're unfaithful to God. Or they're not even part of God's family yet. And so if you're outside of God's family, that's like Rahab from last week's story. Okay, Once you hear about who God is, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the creator of the universe then the idea is that you're supposed to realize that he's the true God. Okay? In our New Testament era, Jesus Christ comes in as the perfect one. And we trust and we put our faith in Jesus because he died for our sins, and he is the king. The New Testament refers to Jesus as the Lord, okay? in contrast to, in the first century, Rome being Lord and Caesar. No! The Christians were saying, Caesar's not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. 
in the Old Testament, it's the same type of thing. Who is your king? Yahweh is our king. And so, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's really the same thing. It's about unfaithful people and that God is the one who is faithful. And it's about people who are outside of God who are brought inside to be part of God's family, like Rahab. So today, you're in one of the same two camps. Either you're outside of God's family and God is inviting you in, or you're one of his people and you're not 100% faithful. And the goal is for us to be faithful inside his family. So you can look at each judge. You can pick out some highlights of the judge, but you're missing the point if you think the judge is the hero. The judges aren't the heroes. God's the hero every single time. Every time, God is the hero. Gideon was a little scared fraidy cat. And God came in and used him to whip the butt of the Midianites. Samson was a hulk of a man who had a voracious appetite for all things bad. And God used him to whip the butt of the Philistines. That's what? He was a whipping boy for the Philistines. God was showing himself strong to take care of the Philistines because God was taking care of what he had promised to do. It's not about Samson. It's not even about Othniel. He was the first judge, and he was a pretty good one, but it's not even about him. If you study through the judges, you'll find that in the end of each of the stories, there's a reversal that takes place. And that's because we're fickle people, and our hearts are wicked. As we, as we close up our, our look at Gideon and, and the book of Judges this morning, I have a couple of questions that I'll, I'll put on the screen after a few minutes that we can reflect upon. But the idea that we need to realize is, first off, I mentioned it earlier, I mean, how long do we wait before we call out for God to help us? Seven years, eight years, seven months, seven days, 20 years, 40 years. If you look at Judges, there's this cycle that I mentioned. But the time in between the cycles or the time in which they're oppressed varies. Could be seven years, could be 20 years, could be 40 years. Why do we wait so long? I think of the Pharaoh in Exodus. And he says to Moses, he says, will you get rid of these frogs now? The frogs were everywhere. They're just hopping everywhere. Will you get rid of the frogs now? Moses says, sure. When do you want them gone? And the Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I'm like, tomorrow? Like, wh why tomorrow? Why not now? How long do we wait? How long do we, we stick it ourselves, stay in this, this mucky mess that we're in? So that's, that's one of the things that we need to think about is how long. The other thing is, without the revelation of God, people cast off restraint and go amok. Without God's revelation, people just do whatever. And so you need the revelation of God. That's what happened with Rahab. She become an outsider and come inside. And the third aspect is the faithfulness aspect that we have to learn to constantly trust God day in and day out, whatever we're going through, whatever the situation is. I don't understand the situation. I don't understand our situation right now. But you either trust God or you trust something else. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a well-known passage. You know, Are you going to acknowledge God in all of your ways? Or are you going to lean on your own understanding? That means trust yourself. Are you going to trust yourself or trust God? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we've looked at the judges, we've looked at Gideon, we've seen how you used Gideon, a flawed man, an afraid man. But you used him. 
to give your people rest for a period of time, and you used him to demonstrate what you could do with 300 men against thousands upon thousands because you are the powerhouse. God, might we learn to trust you. I pray this morning, God, for each person in this room and for myself included, God, that we would learn to trust you in every single aspect of our lives. I pray, Lord, that if there's people here today who, who are outside the faith, they're not part of the family of God, or maybe they don't know if they are, like Rahab, but they've heard some of your works, just like Rahab. She heard about what you had done for the Israelites. They've heard, maybe a little bit today, maybe somewhere else they've heard some. They've heard about the feats of God. They've heard about the power of God, the salvation that Jesus offers, how Jesus paid for our sins, that, God, you might grab hold of their hearts this morning and pull them inside the kingdom, that they would repent of their sins, that they would turn away, call out to you, just like the Israelites cried out to you and you heard and you answered. They would cry out to you and ask you to forgive them of their sins, be their Lord, be their Savior. Show them how to live their lives in a way that pleases you. Turn away from their own selves. And for the Christians in the room, God, I pray that we struggle each day with what the culture tells us, with what we tell ourselves, with what our families might have told us, or what we see in our families. But I pray, God, that in contrast, we would trust you. That we would be faithful to you just as you are perfectly faithful to us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.